and again, Oceanside Sanctuary, welcome to our online worship gathering here on YouTube and Facebook. I'm really excited to have you with us. We're going to continue our teaching series that I'm calling Reconciling America. We're talking about a proven method, a proven path, a proven process for being reconciled with others after there has been hurt or trauma or abuse. And of course, we're talking about this against this backdrop of America going through an incredibly traumatic time. So what we're talking about in this series are not just personal, individual realities, although that is true. These are also bigger social realities. And so as we continue to move forward with this series, I want to encourage you to think about what we're talking about in both of those modes. How does this apply to you individually, and how does this apply to you as you are a part of larger social groups, our church, uh, or your workplace, your family, uh, or larger social groups that you are a part of? That's going to be an ongoing theme in this particular series. Last week, of course, I talked about how it really is too soon to talk about being unified and moving on, that whenever there is... Uh, an offense, wherever there's a hurt or an expression of abuse or trauma, that the first thing that has to happen before we even begin to talk about healing and reconciliation is we must give full expression to our grief. And I want to invite you, if you haven't seen it, to go to our church website. This week uh, on Thursday, I was able to host another Learning Lab conversation with a group of colleagues, uh, clergy from around the country, and we got together and we talked about this idea of what we were grieving and lamenting personally in the wake of events in Washington, D.C., the insurrection on January 6th, and what that means for us as, as clergy people, as Christians who seem to be Uh, whether we want to be or not, by virtue of our faith, aligned with folks in this country who are pursuing a kind of authoritarian expression of Christian nationalism that has a very strong flavor of white supremacy and racism. That is incredibly hard for clergy who identify with that same faith, that same expression of faith as followers of Christ. And so we, we talk about that a little bit. We also talk about how we're trying to make space for lament and grief. And then also we talk about some of the ways that we're trying to move forward and be productive and engage in genuinely restorative work in our communities. So I hope you'll check that video out when you get a chance. It's on the church website at oceansidesanctuary.org. Just go to the learning lab portion of the website and you'll see that video right at the top. Now, recognizing that we are still, many of us, processing grief and frustration and anger in the wake of everything that's been going on in the United States, I do want to today talk about the second step in this proven process of healing and reconciliation as we go through this series. So today we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5. I want to read that passage to you right now, and then we're going to pray together, and I'm going to share some observations that I have with you from that passage. Matthew chapter 5 is our verse for today. Matthew chapter 5, actually, we are going to jump into verse 21. In your Bibles, there might be a header at the top that says something like anger or murder, because Jesus here is addressing the 
the root cause of the things that lead us to violence against each other. So if you have your Bible, read along with me, or we'll put these words up on the screen. Starting in verse 21 says this, You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of a fire of hell. Now, this is not the portion that I want to focus on today, but this is the backdrop for what we're going to be discussing. Jesus is addressing those very deep feelings of anger and contempt and resentment that drive us to expressions of of violence and abuse and even the extremes of murder. And so Jesus is trying to get at not only the root of these issues in our lives as individuals and as communities, but he also is going to move forward with ways that we can make this right. So look again at verse 23 as we read ahead. Therefore, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So right after identifying that these really deep emotions of anger and contempt and resentment are at the heart of our violence towards each other, Jesus goes on to describe this picture of a man who comes to the altar, he comes to the temple in order to offer his offering of worship. And there at the temple, right as he's about to give his offering of worship, he realizes that his brother, it says, has something against him. He realizes that he has done something that has offended somebody that he is connected to in relationship. And Jesus says, the right thing for this person to do is to leave his gift at the altar, to abandon that act of worship, and instead go and be reconciled to the one that has been harmed. Now, I want to continue to read just a little bit because there's a second thing that Jesus identifies here that I think is really important for us to understand today. Verse 25, Jesus says this, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now I want to stop there, and before we jump into the things that I notice about this passage, I want to invite you just to enter into a moment of prayer. Let's silence our hearts and center ourselves on learning something that God might have to give us today. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to gather here today. We thank you for these words and how they challenge us and stretch us, and today we ask that you'd give us the courage to face the cost and the consequences of the hurt and the trauma and the harm that has been caused in our society, that that we would be people who are willing and able to stand up and make a decision to move forward and to be healed, that we would be willing to pay the cost because we realize that it's worth it, that what is on the other side of that process of healing is better than holding on to our anger, our contempt, or our resentment. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me back here again at Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. And I just want to point out again that Jesus is telling this in the Sermon on the Mount as he is addressing these very real issues of hurt and harm and trauma and the need for forgiveness to come in these relationships. And this actually isn't the only passage where Jesus deals with reconciliation and deals with forgiveness and healing. Some of you know that over in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus also addresses a very similar kind of issue. And Matthew chapter 18, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you very quickly, the beginning of it. Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. That's good. But if he won't listen to you, take two or more along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to you, tell it to the congregation. And if he still refuses to listen, even to the congregation, treat, you, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This has a very different flavor, I think, than Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives this more detailed process for bringing about forgiveness and reconciliation in a relationship where there has been some harm or hurt. And that process involves gathering more people. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times this Matthew 18 passage has been weaponized as a way to make people who have been hurt and traumatized feel guilty about not forgiving their abusers and pressured to be reconciled with the very people who are causing them harm over and over again. Now, I just want to say that because what we're talking about today is not a kind of obligation that you have that, that we at this church are going to try to pressure you into to forgive those who are continually causing you harm. Matthew 18 has unfortunately been used that way, and it's, it's been used to set up entire structures and systems of discipline in churches that more often do harm to the victims than they bring justice to those who have been the abusers. So I want to just point out to you first and foremost that Matthew 18 is a passage that is written from the perspective of the victim, the person who has been harmed or abused. And so when I read Matthew 18 and I see that Jesus recommends this very intentional and detailed process by which a person who has been harmed can come to another person and ask for that person to make it right, what Jesus is doing is actually creating a system whereby the victim, the one who's been hurt or harmed or abused, is being protected and cared for by the congregation, by the church. And so when we read Matthew 18 through the lens of the person who has been hurt and abused, this sort of step-by-step -step approach of first asking that person to make it right, and if they refuse to acknowledge the harm they've done, then beginning to involve other people, is actually not a process that pressures victims into forgiving. It's a process, rather, that protects victims from what usually happens in this circumstance. What usually happens, of course, is that the people who do the harm refuse to acknowledge the harm they've done. There's something inside of us, a, an ego or a pride, if you'd rather think of it that way, that, 
that tends to rise up in us and try to justify ourselves and establish a kind of self-righteousness and assert that we didn't do anything wrong. And so this process recognizes that pride that rises up in us, that ego that fights to be justified. And instead, Jesus gives us a process by which a victim of abuse can actually utilize the care and the nurture and the resources of the church to make sure that abusers are held to account for the harm that they've done. And ultimately, if the abuser will not be held to account, Jesus says, that person should be excluded from the community. And so what's ironic about how often Matthew 18 is weaponized against victims is that it, to me, seems like a process that's actually just the opposite. It should be a process that really protects those who have been hurt and harmed. Now, I say that because I want to make it distinct that Matthew 18 is addressing a different kind of situation than Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 18 is written from the perspective of those who've been hurt. But Matthew 5, if you go back to it, is actually the opposite. Matthew 5 is Jesus speaking to those who have been the abusers, speaking to those who have committed the offense, speaking to those who have done the harm. So again, go back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. Matthew chapter 5 is not a process that's written to necessarily help victims to be reconciled to their abusers. It's a process by which abusers, those who have done the harm, come to realize the harm that they've done. They come to realize how serious it is, and they make the decision to move forward to create healing in that situation. Now, I think Jesus does something very intentional here he takes this saying and he sets it within the context of worship. What we have here is a person who, who is about to worship, about to make his offering at the altar, and realizes that he has hurt or harmed somebody else. And instead of worshiping, instead of making his gift at the altar, leaves that gift and goes and makes it right with the person instead. This is, I think, accomplishing two things in this teaching. The first is... It helps us to realize how incredibly important it is from Jesus' perspective for people who have harmed others to make it right. Jesus would seem to be saying here that making it right with people who have something against you is actually more important than your worship. That you ought to abandon your worship entirely if somebody is angry with you or upset with you because you've done them harm. And I think this is actually an important point that Jesus makes, especially in religious circles, because maybe you've noticed this, but religion can, rather than being a way to help people come to terms with harm and abuse and oppression, religion can be a way to mask harm and abuse and oppression. Too often our practices of worship become a fig leaf that hides our guilt and our shame for the things that we've done. Rather than making it right with the people that we have hurt and harmed, we go to church and we put on a happy face and we sing songs and we pray prayers. We stand up behind the pulpit and we give sermons, 
we serve in our Sunday school classrooms, and all of that becomes a way for that performative religion to hide our guilt and to hide our sin. What Jesus is saying, I think, when he tells this part of the Sermon on the Mount, is he's not so much saying that making it right with those you've harmed is more important than worship. Jesus is saying that worship involves making it right with those that we have harmed. Jesus is saying that we misuse our practices of faith, that we misuse our worship, that we misuse our religious values and beliefs when we use them to hide our guilt and our shame and our sin against others. He's saying rather than a fig leaf, our expressions of worship ought to be authentic expressions of our commitment to be right in our relationship with others. So that's how important this is. When we realize that we have harmed somebody else, when someone has something against us, our worship becomes authentic when we realize that we aren't right with somebody else. And so we must go and make it right, at least according to what Jesus tells us here. Now, Jesus continues and reveals something else in this passage that I think is critically important for us to wrestle with. In verse 25, he continues on. So after saying that we ought to leave our worship, if somebody has something against us, in verse 25, he continues and he expands on his point by using another illustration. He says, settle matters quickly, verse 25, settle, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Now again, this is written towards somebody who has done something wrong. So the person who is on his way to court, the person who's being taken to court, is going to lose. That person has done something harmful to somebody else. So he says, if that's you, if you have hurt somebody else and that person is taking you to court, settle it with him on the way to court. Otherwise, the judge will find against you and you will be thrown into prison. And then verse 26, he says something really helpful, I think. He says, I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The first thing that I think Jesus teaches us in this passage is that in order for us to be authentic followers of Christ, we must first be willing to make it right for people that we have harmed. And the second thing he reveals in this passage is that there is a cost to making it right. That when we have hurt and harmed other people, that there is restitution to be made, that there is something that that is going to cost us. In fact, he says, if we refuse to make it right, then we are going to continue to be imprisoned until we have paid the last penny. Now, both of these things taken together, I think, reveal what the second step in any authentic process of healing and reconciliation is. And that step is very simply that we have to decide that we want to be in healthy, reconciled, forgiven relationships with those that we have hurt. We have to wrestle with the cost of both making that restitution on the one hand and the cost of not making that restitution on the other. If we don't make it right with those who have something against us, if we don't make it right with those that we have harmed and abused and hurt, 
then the first cost, of course, is that we have sacrificed the authenticity of what it means for us to be worshipers of God. Another way to say that is that if we don't make it right with people that we have hurt, then we have sacrificed the authenticity of what it means for us to be human. As human beings, we are made in the image of God. And as image bearers of God, being fully and truly and authentically human means embracing whole and healthy relationships. And so if we refuse to do that, if instead we use our religious practices, our religious identities, or our political identities as a fig leaf to hide our sin and our shame and our guilt, then what we have done is we have sacrificed our very identity as image bearers of God. And the other side of that, of course, is if we do want to make that right, if we do want to make it whole, if we do want to heal those broken relationships, then we have to be willing to pay the cost of that. And a simple, I'm sorry, is usually not enough. When we have really hurt and harmed other people, we need to demonstrate to them that we are fully invested and fully committed to their health, to their wholeness, to their well-being, by making it up to them in tangible ways. Whatever we have taken from them, whether it's material or psychological or emotional, Whatever it is that we have robbed from them with that harm or that abuse, we need to make restitution for that. Now, this is, of course, a difficult decision to make because, like I said earlier, our pride and our egos tend to rise up and get in the way of us paying that cost. Our pride and our egos will fight and kick and scream to do everything that it can to justify us, to make us feel self-righteous in our actions so that we don't have to make that restitution, so we don't have to pay that cost. And so, my friends, the second thing, after lamenting and grieving and processing our anger and our frustration, the second thing that we must do is wrestle with whether or not we are willing to pay the cost of being a people who are in right relationship with each other again. We have to decide, are we willing to do it? Are we willing to invest ourselves in being healed as individuals, as families, as a church, as a community, as a country? Are we willing to pay that price? This is of course an individual reality. Every single one of us in our relationships has been hurt, and every single one of us in our relationships has been the one who caused the hurt. As I'm talking about this, it's very likely that some of you are thinking about relationships in your lives where you have hurt another person, and you're asking yourself, is it worth the cost of making it right with them? Is it worth the cost of being whole again? That's your decision to make. Many of you, of course, have been hurt, have been victimized. And you're wondering if it's worth the cost of going to them and asking them to make it right. If it's worth the cost of going through the process of Matthew 18 and involving friends and family and supporters, perhaps in our church, to help hold that person accountable. Ultimately, that's your decision to make. But of course, this isn't just an individual reality. We don't hurt and harm and sin against others 
merely as individuals, we also hurt and harm and sin against others as members of a social group. Sometimes we are caught up in the implication of that. Sometimes we are caught up in the guilt and the complicity of that simply by our membership in those other groups. And so today I'm here to tell you, especially if you are white like me, if you are deemed to be a white person like me, that our black and brown and Asian and indigenous American brothers and sisters have something against us. They have been harmed and hurt and traumatized and abused by white Americans and by systems of oppression in this country that have been aligned with white expressions of power. And if we want to make it right with them, we have to decide to leave our gift at the altar and make it right with them. Now, when I say that, I know that that hurts on some level that, like me, many of you want to insist that you haven't done anything against people of color, that you don't hate people who are black or brown or Asian American or indigenous Americans. You don't think of them as inferior. You aren't the kind of ugly racist that believes that white people are actually superior to people of color. I know that's true of you. I believe that's true of me too. But white supremacy is much more insidious and runs much deeper is a much subtler fraud than simply the ugly individual hatred that we normally think of when we talk about racism. You know, I started at this church as the pastor five years ago. And when I started here five years ago, it was a very different church. It was very small. It had been really struggling for 40 years. It was full of a lot of dysfunction and unhealthy relationships and and so it hadn't really been thriving and growing for a very long time as a congregation. And my job when I came here five years ago was to try to help to begin to repair some of that. And one of the things I did was when I came, I just began to dig into everything I could learn about this congregation, about our history. We've been around for 145 years. What were the things that were contributing to our unhealth? What were the things that were contributing to our dysfunction that were leading to our church dying slowly, year after year. One of the things that I've noticed about churches is very often when you visit churches like that, or really any kind of churches, usually there are a couple people in that church who are really in charge. And I don't mean that they're on staff or that they're clergy people or even board members, but they're the people in the congregation who really hold the power. And there were people at our church five years ago just like that too. People who had been at the church for decades who really were the ones who essentially decided how things were going to be, even if they weren't officially in a position of authority. And one person in particular that I remember uh, was a woman who had been a, a part of our church for a few decades. She'd been around for a very long time. She's not at our church anymore. So as I tell this story, I don't want you to be wondering who this is. This is somebody who has since moved on, but she had been at the church for decades and she knew everything there was to know about our church. And so I, I spent for probably two years, I spent every single week having a conversation with her so that I could sort of pick her brain and learn more about the history of our congregation and figure out maybe where the pockets of dysfunction were. 
One day I was talking to her and she was telling me about another family who used to be in the church who had left recently. They were no longer a part of the church, even though they'd been a part of our church for 20 years, even though you know both the husband and the wife had served in leadership positions, been on the board, been elders and deacons, uh, spearheaded ministries at our church, people who had really brought life to our church had after 20 years decided it was time for them to leave and move on. And I, I was curious why they had left. So one day we were having a conversation and I was asking this friend, this member of our congregation, more about this family. Who were they and what had they been doing and why did they leave? And it turns out, of course, that they had left because of a conflict. And so I wanted to know more about the conflict and I wanted to know what the argument was and you know where there was hurt and where there was dysfunction so I could help try to, try to heal that. And I could tell that my friend didn't really want to talk about it. She, she was resisting my questions, uh, but I persisted and pressed in a little bit. And finally, she got a little bit irritated and, and she just sort of decided to sum up the problem altogether. And she said, you know what the real problem was? I said, no, tell me, what was the real problem? She said, the real problem was they just couldn't get over being black. I said, what do you mean? She said, just that, they just, they just couldn't get over being black. And I said to her, well, how exactly do you think somebody could get over being black? And you know, she paused and hesitated and then said, oh, I'd rather not talk about it. Now, I tell you this story, not because I want you to think that she was a terrible person. She wasn't a terrible person. She was kind, deeply committed to her faith. She loved the Jesus that she was taught about as a child. She came to church every single week and brought her gift to the altar. On almost a weekly basis, this is a person that I saw open up her purse and give money to people who were poor on the street, who were struggling to get by. This is a person who had an incredible heart for the poor. She was an incredibly kind, devoted, and compassionate white supremacist. And she is not the only one. When we insist that people of color, black and brown and Asian American and indigenous Americans leave behind and sacrifice their ethnic and cultural heritage and identity so that they can be absorbed into some magical ideal of colorblindness, that is white supremacy at work. What it really is, is an expression of power. And that idea that every single one of us has to sacrifice some aspect of who we are, good aspects of who we are, in order to submit to some colorblind expression of power that keeps some people poor because of their physical characteristics and other people rich because of their arbitrary physical characteristics, what we are doing is perpetuating a system of abuse and trauma and ultimately death. 
Because in this country, if you do not get over being black and act like a white person in all the ways that you are expected to, then we are willing to kill you. Our history is littered with examples of how we have been massacring people of color because they won't get over being people of color. This is what we mean when we talk about white supremacy, and it is what was on display last week in Washington, D.C. What we saw was not about a love for the Constitution. What we saw had nothing to do with a stolen election. It had nothing to do with conservatism. What we saw in Washington, D.C. had everything to do with a white backlash against people of color who refused to back down and refused to let go of their identities. And we as people who are deemed white, people like me, who whether we have ill feelings towards people of color or not, no matter what we might think about our friends or family members or neighbors who are black or brown or indigenous or Asian, However kind our thoughts towards those people might be, we are complicit in a system of trauma and abuse and death unless we fight against that white supremacy. Just like the man who brought his gift to the altar and left it there to make things right with his brother, we not only have a decision to make as individuals, but we have a decision to make as a people. Are we going to make this right? We are, as a country, and as a church, at a place of reckoning. Are we willing to pay the price of being reconciled? Are we willing to make restitution? Or would we rather pay the price of being unhealthy, and being dysfunctional, and continuing to live in a culture that still hasn't paid the last penny for its sins. It's up to us to make these decisions. My prayer today is that we would have the courage to decide to make our communities healthy and whole again. That we would be willing to make it right to the people that we have hurt, not just as individuals, but that we would be willing to make it right as a people. At this church, at the Oceanside Sanctuary, we have decided to make this a priority. You have decided to make this a priority. And in the coming days and weeks and months and years, that is going to require that we decide every day that it's worth the cost. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for the way that your words challenge us and stretch us and invite us to become a people who are transformed and redeemed and healthy and whole again. We pray that you would make it right in our hearts, that you would make it right in our relationships, and that you would make it right in our communities and in our country. We pray that you would give us the grace and the courage to make the decision that we will walk forward into a process of healing and reconciliation, no matter the cost, because we recognize that it's worth it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Hey everyone, we've got a few couple quick announcements before we say goodbye this morning. So the first thing is, is if you're new, we'd love to get to know you. You can drop a comment here. You can go to oceansidesanctuary.org slash contact, fill out a contact form, and we'd love to get to know you, get in touch with you, etc. Next is our call and response is coming up on January 21st at 6.30 p.m. This time we are studying the book of Job and this is really just a opportunity to come together, look at scripture together, dialogue about it, not get the right answers in a sense, but really just be in community with each other and talk about what's coming up. So join us for that January 21st, 6.30 p.m. Next, we have our congressional meeting coming up, which just is a fancy way of saying we're all going to get together on Zoom and vote on the new Mission 2023 commitment. So this is really important. As you know, we've been putting a lot of work into the mission for the next three years. So this is the time where we're all going to come together on January 31st at 10 a.m right after the service, January 31st. This is our chance to come together and vote on the mission for the next three years. So very important, we hope to see you there. Next up also as well on January 31st is the MLK celebration. So our new anti-racism team would love to see you there. We are partnering with the Disciples of Christ, the denomination that we're a part of, putting on a great event with some great speakers so we'd love to see you there at 5 p.m. on January 31st. You can check out oceansidesanctuary.org calendar for more on that. And last we have our Roots class which is coming up on Saturday February 6th and normally our Roots class is kind of spread out but this time we're just doing it on one day. Saturday, February 6th, and this is really the chance to get to know uh, where this church came from, what we value, what we prioritize, and normally it's for newer members, but actually this is a perfect time, even if you've been here for a long time, to come, because we're going to be talking about the new mission, everything that's coming for the next three years, and it's, again, just a chance to really root into the history of what we are doing here and where we're going in the future so we hope to see you there as well saturday february 6th and lastly we are a nonprofit 501c3 and we really rely on the gifts and donations of people just like you to keep doing all the amazing things we're doing here so if you feel able or called to give today, you can head on over to oceansidesanctuary.org slash give and make a gift there. All right, everyone. So good to see you here. I wish I could see you in person. I know that day is coming soon. But until then, have a beautiful week, and we'll see you next week right here on Facebook and YouTube. Peace, everyone.